This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on Evangelical Christianity's purity movement and its effects on an amazingly large portion of the American population. As our regular listeners know, we often bring on role models and talk about tactics and strategies for personal success, but we also periodically step back and look at the societal context in which we work and live, and that's what we're going to do today. We are actually going to do those things that polite people don't normally do. We're going to talk about sex and religion and even some politics. But our goal is not to titillate nor to deride faith. It's actually to help us examine the impact of these systemic cultural messages on our personal and professional lives. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We'd love to have you join the conversation, so give us a ring. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON. 942-7866. So in the 1990s, a purity industry emerged out of the white evangelical Christian movement, fueled by government funding for abstinence education, which, by the way, was proven not to actually work. It systematically promulgated this paradigm for men's and women's roles that left a generation of girls and women traumatized and without voice, often at the hands of the institutions they turn to for guidance and protection. My guest today was one of those girls, Linda K. Klein, the author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda spent over a decade working at the intersection of faith, female empowerment, and social change. She's the founder of Break Free Together, a program that works to help people release sexual shame and claim their whole selves. She earned a master's degree from NYU focused on American evangelical Christian gender and sexuality messaging for girls. And a Midwesterner at heart, she now lives in New York City with her family. And we're thrilled to have her join us today. So, Linda, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We are, too. So let's start off. Help us really understand what is the purity movement? Absolutely. So the purity movement, as you mentioned, emerged in the early 1990s um, and really was started by the white American evangelical Christian church, although the concept of purity certainly had been around for a very long time before that. Um, And, you know, the concept of purity is largely around sexual purity, Uh, this idea that um, particularly if you're a girl or a woman, you can be shamed for your own sexual thoughts and feelings and choices, particularly outside of marriage, but also you can be shamed for the sexual thoughts and feelings and choices that are made toward you because in this paradigm, you learn that girls and women elicit the sexual thoughts and feelings of others. So within a purity culture, you really would learn that girls and women are responsible for maintaining the sexlessness of the entire culture. Now, what happened in the early 90s is that this purity teaching, this purity culture became a movement and very quickly an industry in large part because money became available from the federal and state level for abstinence only before marriage messaging. So now you have some of these religious um, purity purveyors who are teaching this message start to get some government money and we start to see this uh, this um, this sort of rationale start to be uh, ramped up in evangelical churches and spread around the country. So that's when you start to see purity rings and purity balls and purity pledges and even purity-themed Bibles which I think really illustrate it well. You know, just imagine being a young person and growing up and having a, a, a purity-themed Bible where around 60 pages of the Bible is non-biblical material that's entirely dedicated to the importance of maintaining your sexual purity with messages like avoid the horizontal. You know, when that's your context, it's very difficult not to conflate your salvation and your sexuality. So there's a lot to unpack here because this is dense and interesting and important. So let's start with um, kids are being given a Bible that they're told is the Bible, the holy book. And it's not explained to them that the inserts in the Bible come from the people behind the movement? 
No, no, I'm sure that that would be explained as people were given a Bible. You know, they know it's a purity-themed Bible. But, you know, the reality of just putting these material immediately next to each other, um, you know, does does deep things to your mind and mm-hmm. I think is also reflective of the larger culture where many of us as young people got the impression that particularly if you're a girl or a young woman who's unmarried, that the way that you prove your Christianity is by being non-sexual and making sure that other people are non-sexual by dressing in just the right right way, walking in just the right way, talking in just the right way, doing everything just right to make sure that there's no sexual expression. So young Um, girls are being given the message that they are responsible for protecting against a fundamental aspect of our humanity. Right, exactly. Particularly, you know, as those young girls become adolescents. Um, I think that there's a, a period of time before you become an adolescent where you you can experience some relative freedom from, from these messages. But certainly as you enter into adolescence, things become to cha- begin to change. And that's really where you start to see the messaging directed um, at, the, at the adolescent audience. So you had mentioned in the beginning that, so one part of it is you have to negate any sexual feelings that you have as a person, that they're not allowed, that they're, you're taught that they are evil and you must eradicate them. Right. Well, you know, it's very complicated because the rules of the purity culture um, or the purity movement, you know, tend to be ambiguous. You know, some people tend to believe that absolutely any sexual thought, any sexual feeling, you know, those are um, uh, forces to be conquered. Um, and if you don't conquer them, you know, they can decrease your purity. Whereas others in the community might think that you can, you know, do any number of, of things, kiss, hold hands, maybe make out and still maintain your purity. So as a young person, you know, you really are within a community where your purity is being judged and, and determined by the other people in the community, and yet they all have different uh, different rules and different <laughs> models that they're using to assess it. So you live in a constant state of anxiety just guessing what it is that's going to make you lose your purity. Now, let's talk about the notion that your purity is something important, something intact, something that you're responsible for protecting? Why is it so important? You know, this is really how we, um, let me go back and actually tell you about a teaching that might give it some context. Um, I was going to say this is how we have worth within the community, but in order for you to understand that, I'm going to give you this larger context. That context is there's a teaching, a gender teaching within most evangelical churches called complementarianism. Complementarianism is this teaching that men and women are equal in God's eyes and yet have different roles and responsibilities in the world um, and in particular in the church and in the family. And those roles are that men are to be, you know, masculine leaders and women are to be feminine followers. And if they um, don't fulfill those expectations, which complement each other, right, that's hence mm-hmm. the term complementarianism, um, you know, then everything falls apart. You know, there is a lack of complement. So if women are, um, you know, not not uh, not following, you know, to the best of their ability, if men are, um, you know, allowing women to, to, you know, be making the decision in the household or, or if women become pastors or any number of things that could throw this off, you know, the teaching is that everything falls apart. So within this community, you can see how women, you know, we're really taught that we work in relationship with a man, right? Yes. Um, you can see with this gendered picture, you know, you are not a whole sort of being on your own. You know, you are following who, you know, without (laughs) one woman said it's difficult to know how to function in the community without the, quote, headship of a man, right? So single women can find it very difficult. Um, So within that community where you're taught that men and women complement one another and that partnership, specifically marital partnership, is really, really important, Um, you know, being Uh, setting yourself up to be a good Christian wife is incredibly important. So, and the way that we're told that we do that is by maintaining purity. You know, if you are utterly and absolutely pure before marriage, we're told, then you're going to have a blissful, amazing um, relationship after marriage, particularly blissful, amazing sexual relationship. So, you know, if you're pure, you're good wife material. And if you're impure, you're lucky if any good Christian man ever loves you. 
so that really is the crux of why this um, teaching is taught to be so important for um, for girls and women. And it also sounds like there are so many layers to it that actually make it dangerous in many ways. That women, it sounds like women have no agency um, because fundamentally, outside of God's eyes, they're lesser than. They're, they're subjected to the leadership and decision-making of the men in their lives. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that, that teaching around complementarianism, it starts with men and women are equal in God's eyes, but, right? Um, you know, but really this is an outgrowth of patriarchal um, religious teachings, mm-hmm. um, which are you know, uh, don't start with that equal in God's eyes part. Right. <laughs> you know, they, they start with the, you know, um, this is a, um, a hierarchy that starts with God. God is the supreme being, then goes to man, um, and then goes to woman. When and did so this see, emerge? Because you know, this, this is not part of the ancient teachings, just like a lot of other fundamentalist religions right now. You know, this really is quite baked into Christianity, um, largely because we, you know, we had a time where Christianity was heavily influenced by Greek uh, philosophical thought. So you have people like Aristotle um, and Plato talking about how the uh, the intellectual and spiritual, you know, or the, the the area of the mind, right? This realm is so much greater than the area of the body. The body is earthly and not as good. So you start to see the mind-body connection mm-hmm. there, right? Um, you know, and that that was very influential thinking for a lot of early Christian teachers. Um, you know, so it starts to get these cultural ideas about a mind-body separation, about the um, the mind and the spirit being better than the body. Um, you know, also these cultural teachings around um, you know women uh, you know being lesser than men, um, mm-hmm. even in many cases being the property of men. Um, you know, these things end up getting baked into a lot of our early constructs because they were influential on a lot of early Christian thinkers. So a lot of people, when they're actually looking for, um, you know, for the healthiest teachings around sexuality, go back into the Jewish um, perspectives that predated um, the emergence of Christianity, in fact. You know, because we've had a long, long issue with uh, gender imbalance and sexual control globally um, throughout history. Mm -hmm. These are long-standing issues, and therefore they show up in um, in many different religious traditions and in many different families and in many different right. workplaces and in many different homes. You know, these are, you know, these things that I'm talking about in the church, I'm sure people have um, experienced in many other places as well, because uh, because really these are cultural issues that are embedded into various manifestations of culture. But there is something that has emerged in the last 30 years where um, this has grown in its influence in in this country, I think, especially in contrast to ways that the rest of society seems to be evolving, um, that the promulgation of this context, these teachings, um, have affected a generation in a way that the ones before them may not have been generate, uh, affected to the same degree? Or am I overstating it? You know, you you actually are, are hitting on something important. Um, you know, remember that that this purity movement coming out in the early 1990s, you know, that didn't come out of nowhere. You know, this was post-sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people were quite upset about that. Um, there, it's also post or, or in the midst of the AIDS crisis. So there's a lot of uh, discomfort from the sexual revolution, we'll say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a, probably a, <laughs> a soft <laughs> an, word. I was going to say an um, understatement, yes. <laughs> an understatement, yep. Um, and then there's a lot of fear, you know, around the AIDS crisis. So we have, um, in this period of the early 1990s, we actually have a number of different groups that are starting to come forward and say, you know, we have some serious societal um, issues here that we need to deal with. You know, we need to figure out how to keep people safe. Um, And, you know, this was one of the solutions that was put forth and uh, the purity, the purity movement and the idea that if we could just tell people don't have sex anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Don't have any feelings. Don't masturbate. Don't do anything. You know, we just get people to be completely, quote unquote, pure. Right. So hang out. Hang out alone in their bedrooms reading good books. By the way, I just need to 
interrupt for one second to let our listeners yeah. know that you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Linda K. Klein, and we're talking about her book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. If you have a question about something we're discussing, or you'd like to join in the conversation, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can tell us your story. We don't need to use your name. Our number is one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Linda, one of the other things that you were talking about earlier is this idea of girls are taught that girls and women are responsible for not tempting men. Talk to me more about how this is taught to girls and women and how this plays out in real life. It sounds like you're burdening um, the object of desire um, with controlling somebody else's behavior. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the things that I was um, uh, talked to about many times when I was growing up, if somebody deemed that my skirt was too short or my you know, tank top stra- straps were you know, not wide enough or whatever it was, that, or I was you know, talking to the boys too much, um, you know, the thing that I would be called when I would be pulled aside um, uh, by youth leaders or sometimes even by male peers um, was a stumbling block. Now, this is a, a term, um, a biblical term, around um, something that acts as an obstacle uh, to prevent people on their pathway to, to God, to sort of stop people on their pathway to God. Um, never in the Bible is uh, a woman or a girl described as a stumbling block. But in the community that I grew up in, you know, that was almost the only way that I ever heard the term used. Um, you know, we were literally described as things over which men and boys would trip on their pathway to God, um, you know, and ultimately what that means is that, you know, we were being um, uh, called responsible for their thoughts and their feelings. You know, my skirt was going to cause them to masturbate or whatever the case might be, right? And this um, extended even into rape, that it's not a man's fault that he raped a woman, it's her fault that he wanted to? Well, I think that it certainly feeds into rape culture. I mean, you know, look, look at what happens when we when we um, hear about a rape in society. So mm-hmm. often we hear people say, you know, their first questions out of the gate are, what was she wearing? Why was she out so late? Was she drinking? Right? We're, we're so curious about all of the things that she did to make herself vulnerable, to allow for this sexual experience to have happened. Um, one of my interviewees, um, you know, in my book, because my book is my story, but also, you know, I've been doing interviews for 12 years with people who were raised in communities like my own. One of my interviewees, you know, tells a story about how she uh, came home and told her pastor father and mother that she had been raped. And, um, and the first thing that she was asked was, what were you wearing? Um, So it certainly sets a precedent. You know, when we blame people for the thoughts and feelings of actions and actions of others, um, it sets a precedent that can be quite dangerous. And as you can imagine, um, quite debilitating to the family, you know, that that uh, that moment can never be done again. Um, You know, that that pastor father can never um, really take that back, never take back the, the hurt of that. Um, you know, and the reality is, is that I would say he uh, was trained to have that reaction, you know, by mm-hmm. these by these messages around blaming women and girls for the thoughts, feelings and actions of men and boys. And so as much as he might want to take that back now, um, you know, that moment happened because of years of training. And um, and we need to we need to work on ourselves now and start to deconstruct these messages now before before we find ourselves in that kind of position ourselves. Absolutely, because it sounds like it's fueling a kind of systemic misogyny and patriarchy. Yes, and people aren't necessarily aware of it. You know, it's functioning at such a deep level because it's so embedded into our psyche. Um, you know, it's, it is embedded into so much of what we've learned about the world that we don't realize the influence it's ha- having over us. But yes, it is It is. Um, deeply impacting us. Talk to me more, because the book is filled with these stories, which I have to say are tenderly told. They feel like a combination of sensitive storytelling and responsible reporting, um, and helps make real what this um, way of thinking and approaching faith um, does to various parts of our lives and stages of our lives. Um, So tell me a little bit about, in this story in particular, it wasn't just... this young woman's raped. 
So that's its own deep trauma. And now she has to come home and tell her Christian parents that this has happened. Um, they start by asking her, what were you wearing? But there's also an aspect of how, and I may be conflating two of the stories, but how this happening to her is perceived as reflecting upon the parents. Yeah, no, that's the same story. Yeah. You know, there's um, there's plenty of shame to go around, um, you know, when we are teaching, when we're using purity teachings, um, which essentially are shaming at their core because we're telling people you are pure or you are impure, you are good or you are bad, you are worthy or you are unworthy, you are lucky to be loved or you are lucky if you're loved. Um, you know, these these shaming messages, um, which teach people not that they did bad, but that they are bad, um, you know, are very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's that's uh, the result is that that many, many of my interviewees really struggle with shame. Um, and, and that manifests oftentimes as fear and anxiety. I'm not surprised. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on CRCXM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest this hour is Linda K. Klein. Um, we're talking about her new book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. We'd love to have you join in the conversation. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And while we usually like to know who you are, if you want to join this conversation, it's okay to do it without sharing your name. So that's one 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, Linda, in talking about this kind of shaming that goes on, um, and, you know, with shame is, you know, it seems like it comes hand in hand with blame. Talk to me about how abuse is, um, given the relationship between suffering um, and duty, how do people process sexual abuse? Mm. You know, sexual uh, uh, consensual sexual activity tends to be uh, hyper focused on, um, and non consensual uh, sex, so violence, abuse, tends to be um, silenced. So oftentimes we're not hearing about abuse. Um, this is something that many of my interviewees uh, who have suffered abuse talk about. You know, the the silence feels deafening for them so often. You know, we hear so much about the importance of remaining pure. Um, you know, we're talking ad nauseum mm -hmm. <laughs> about sex and sexuality, and yet we hear um, nothing about sexual violence. And, you know, the result is that um, oftentimes sexual violence is assessed by the same rules as consensual sex. Now, again, this isn't done consciously, but because we don't talk about sexual violence, particularly in so many of our religious settings, you know, our our default is to assess it by the um, same rules that we have for consensual sex. So, for example, um, you know, the, the purity ethic is one man and one woman in marriage forever. Now, if you have someone come forth in a marriage and explain that they have been raped, um, you know, that it is often assessed by that ethic. Well, you're one man, one woman in marriage forever. So, no, despite the fact that you're describing violence, we're not going to categorize that as rape. Um, whereas if someone comes and describes a rape that takes place outside of the marriage bed, well, it's one man, one woman in marriage forever. You know, this didn't happen there. Therefore, you know, everyone is made impure. Um, everyone has sinned. We need to look at this as a sin issue. There, it, we need to look at it as a forgiveness issue. Um, we're not going to bring it to the courts necessarily because, um, you know, this is, you know, yet another spiritual sexual issue that we need to deal with. Um, so there is a real, there is a real conflation and a miscategorization of sexual violence, where sexual violence is categorized as sex, whereas anybody who has experienced sexual violence can tell you it is not sex. You know, it is violence. It is violence. It needs to be categorized as such. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because even outside of the evangelical movement, we have this playing out on a national stage where in order to protect a male Supreme Court nominee, women are being attacked for why didn't they speak up sooner? Yet we exist in cultures, even outside the evangelical movement, where if you speak up, you are shamed. And it seems like it's, that's um, intensified on an even deeper level within the purity movement. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the reality is that very little, um, you know, rape and abuse is reported, as we know. Um, I think that the last stat that I saw said 30% is reported, and mm-hmm. 1% of that is prosecuted. 1%? So that's what I recently read. So, you know, just imagine if you if you're going to be and I actually think that 30% is probably high based on based on my experience of having talked with people who have been raped and abused. I I I know many more the percentage that percentage seems high for reporting. Um, but you know the reality is is that you know shame is alive and well. And you know when when we look at these these messages um, that I'm talking about in the purity movement, um, really what they, you know, and their impact on people's lives, you know, this is what happens when you get an intense dose of this toxic messaging, this toxic, um, you know, messaging that we're talking about that is, is prevalent throughout society, that we are all taking in, in unhealthy levels, right? And that we can see playing out in society as a whole. It doesn't just happen within the evangelical church. It isn't just taught within the evangelical church. It is taught across society and it impacts us all. And, um, and so long as we continue to assume this is the way that it is, which you know, happens oftentimes when it's baked into religion. You know, Mm -hmm. we say, oh, this is the way it is because this is what the church says, and therefore we're not going to question it. But, you know, so long as we make that assumption, it's difficult to dismantle it. Um, It's difficult to change the culture and to say, no, we are not going to um, shame women for not reporting or people for not reporting because anyone who becomes um, a survivor, you know, is shamed. There's a special kind of shame for every type of survivor. Um, You know, so long as we, you know, refuse to dismantle the roots of these messaging, um, you know, the shame cycle will continue. Without a doubt. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to be talking more with Linda in the second half about all of these issues about how to separate ourselves from the dangerous parts of this while retaining faith and her efforts to help other women break free. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. And give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Linda K. Klein. Her book is called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda, welcome back to Women at Work. I'm so happy to be here. We're delighted to have you. Before the break, we were talking about the purity movement um, and the way that it's shaped an understanding of the relationship between men and women um, within evangelical Christian families and households. And you were explaining complementarianism to us, this idea that in God's eyes, men and women are equal, but they have different roles in church and family, and that it's through partnership with a man that a woman finds her way in life. Talk to me about how this impacts women who don't want to get married. Oh, what a great question. Um, you know, I actually have an entire chapter where I talk about singleness in the church because it really is a big issue. Um, a number of single women, uh, when interviewed and asked what the biggest problems are in the church, you know, talk about singleness, women and singleness in the church, because it is such a, an uncomfortable position that they hold oftentimes. Um, you know, in fact, uh, I remember reading a study that found that the number one indicator of whether or not one attends church is their marital status, you know, because it is such a comfortable place for married couples because it really functions around married couples. Um, so I think that single women, you know, have a particularly heavy cross to bear, however, perhaps that's not the best metaphor for this, <laughs> for this setting. Or um, perhaps really poetic. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, um, but they do because of these purity expectations. Um, you know, uh, men and men are really given more leeway when it comes to sexual expectations than women are. Um, so single women oftentimes talk about feeling, uh, 
you know, like they are uh, perceived as a threat within the community. Um, they're perceived as somebody who might steal a married man or who might go too far sexually with a single man. Um, so, so they really need to be um, particularly on guard, which is something that I write about a lot with my interviewees who are, are trying to function and be healthy adult people, um, you know, within the community, but because they are single, feel like, feel like they are under constant watch. It sounds as if commensurate with this kind of systemic control over gender and power, um, that as women emerge, if, if you're a single woman, part of what you're doing is emerging into your own power as a person. Um, you mature, you find your voice, you become more experienced, more competent, and that that very growth process, um, there's an attempt to constrain it. Hmm. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting uh, piece of research that I point to in the book that talks about uh, whether you were raised in a complementarian church, which we talked about, you know, the idea that men are the leaders and women are the followers, or whether you're raised in an egalitarian church. Now, an egalitarian church would believe and teach that um, men and women are equal and have equal same roles, you know, or that their roles aren't determined by gender in every sector of life. And um, they, they interviewed girls. And of course, I should also mention that some evangelical churches are egalitarian, mm-hmm. um, not the majority, but some are. And they did some interviews, and they um, interviewed girls who were raised in these two types of churches, and young women, and, you know, sort of across a a span of age. And they found that the biggest difference um, between the populations uh, who were raised in the complementarian and the egalitarian churches were among young women. And they found that both uh, sets of young women came into greater maturity, greater sense of voice, greater sense of self, greater confidence. The difference was that if you were raised in an egalitarian community, you saw that as a good thing, mm. you know, whereas if you were raised in a complementarian community, you saw that as a sign of sin, a sign of pride and something that needed to be beat down because it was a sign that you were living wrongly. So the very qualities that help a girl become a full woman and member of our society, an independent thinker and a contributing force, are seen as sinful within the complementarian structure. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and there's this, um, you know, I feel like I'm talking a lot about research, but there's another piece that I'll just throw out there. Um, There was a study that the, um, or perhaps study is overstating it, but there was um, a finding from the, that came out of the Vatican that the number one sin confessed by women was pride. And I don't think that that is because women are more prideful than men, not at all. I think that that's because, um, you know, gender expectations are such that pride is seen as particularly terrible if you're a woman, you know, and of course, keep in mind that some of these women confidence was considered pride for them. Right, because it's, it, it's probably seen as dangerous because it's potent. Right, because within a complementarian structure, you are supposed to be, um, uh, you know, following someone else. So if you're too confident, if you're too prideful, you know, you are sinning on um, a, on a second level. You're sinning on a, a spiritual level because we talk about pride being bad, but you're also sinning on a gender level because you're not living out your gender expectations. Now, because I obviously didn't grow up within that construct or, and don't live within it, um, I can't imagine subjugating my sense of self, my desire to make a positive impact in the world, my desire and comfort in my own autonomy. Um, What do women who are growing up within this structure do with those feelings? Mm, Well, I can tell you what I did. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I very much saw my purpose in life, uh, you know, had a very strong sense of, um, being wanting to be part of making the world a better place. But I saw my purpose in life and my way to do that as being bound up within the community. So there are certain ways that you are um, allowed to be um, preaching some really incredible things. I mean, the message of Jesus is a message of love, a message of radical acceptance, a radical justice, some, some would say even. Um, so I really grew up embracing those things. And it wasn't until I became older that I started to um, really wrestle with the ways that I wasn't able to embrace other things that um, were, you know, 
parts of me and parts of what I believed and parts of what I wanted to, um, parts of ways that I wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, so, you know, so it's not that there isn't, you know, activism going on. It's that people channel it into the appropriate channels oftentimes. Now, someone might get to a point where they're ready to channel it into an quote unquote, inappropriate channel through an inappropriate channel. And then they have a big decision ahead of them. They can either, um, you know, stay within the community and fight from within, which I think is a a mighty thing to do because it is not easy, but Mm -hmm. many are doing it. Um, Or, you know, they might feel that um, that they just don't have it in them. Um, and that they need to step outside of the community as I as I did um, to be able to to be their whole self. Because while it's clear that it has this impact on how you engage with the world, it's also clear that it has an enormous impact on your sense of self and your relationship with your own body and feelings. You tell a story from when you were a teenager and that and you described your body as something too fleshy, too round, um, too enticing in a way, as if you have any control over that or it should be your problem as opposed to this is who I am and this is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I felt like I, there, it just didn't matter how much good I did, you know, that um, I could start as many Bible studies as I wanted. I could bring as many people to Christ as I wanted. And I was doing all of those things. But there would still be something about me because of my body, because of this inherent sexuality that other people seem to identify with me, that I would always be bad at my core. Um, and ultimately, you know, that's that's what really drove me out of this community. Now, as you mentioned earlier, I am still a Christian because it took me a while to figure this out, but there are other ways to live into faith, to live into um, relationship with God. And I really had to wrestle and um, reject a lot of the things that I had learned about um, about whether I was about my whole self and whether or not it was acceptable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to God, um, to be able to find these other forms of Christianity and these other ways of being a faithful person. I want to take a step back to um, you were talking about how it's so much of the system is binary. It's one extreme or the other. It's black or white. Um, and that also, while this kind of virginal purity is expected of you, then there's the expectation once you get married that you are fully responsible for your husband's delight. Am I translating that appropriately? Yeah, I would say largely responsible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not 100 percent, but no, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there's there's a strict expectation of non-sexuality before marriage, and then there's a strict expectation of sexual satisfier after marriage, that you become a sexual satisfier. And it's not mutual. It's about you providing the satisfaction. I would say it's mutual, but that there's a um, an extra emphasis that are given that's given to women and girls, at least from my view. That having been said, I think that men and boys get a lot of um, shame around not being sexual enough. I think that's an area that is true in society and that also shows up in the uh, expectations in the marriage bed within um, evangelical society. Um, oftentimes, the you know within the marriage bed um, in evangelical society, you get the same the same sort of uh, rules that you get in secular society in general. Um, so men are expected to be hypersexual. They're expected to be um, wanting it all the time. Um, so yes, women and girls are, are not girls in this case, but women are definitely blamed if the um, if the sex life isn't satisfying, you know, because perhaps they were too sexual before marriage is something that's brought up a lot. Um, you know, if you if you're struggling in your marriage bed, well, did you masturbate before marriage? Did you ever go too far? Did you have sexual thoughts or feelings? You know, whatever it might be, we're sort of looking for the sin that happened, um, particularly with the women and girl. But, you know, I don't want to pretend that men and boy that men aren't getting um, shamed, particularly if they're not sexual, quote unquote, enough in the marriage bed. Because remember, that, you know, this purity culture relies on strict gender expectations. And It'll, one of gender expectations is hypermasculinity um, and hypersexuality for men. Right. And one of the things you also wrote about is in this environment where you can't even, like, sex does not exist. There's such an, an intense expectation and definition of purity um, that you have no information 
um, no experiences, and then you're expected to go and have this magical experience. It almost sounds like the equivalent of saying you have no appetite, you never eat food, you never cook food, you never even go into a supermarket. Tomorrow you're going to get married, and then as soon as you get married, put Thanksgiving dinner on the table. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great metaphor. Absolutely. So how do women cope with this? Uh, it's, it's a big struggle, um, you know, and, and I would say, you know, this is, you know, my expertise is on women, um, but, you know, this is also something that men experience as well. And um, that couples you know, so, must experience together. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a it's a huge challenge. Um, you know, so one of the things that happens is that, you know, people have gotten so good at turning their sexuality off that they are no longer able to turn it on. Um, you know, if they are just uh, they don't have a light switch inside of them, as somebody in my book says, um, a, a, a therapist who works with couples named um, Marlene Winnell. Um, you know, others uh, find that they are able to access their sexuality, but women and girls in particular have been told uh, that they're to, to not be aware of their own sexual desires, to not be aware of what they like sexually, because if they're too aware of what they like, it might emasculate their husbands, which is actually given as a reason for why women shouldn't masturbate, because they should never be better at touching themselves than, than their husband would be, so that their husband always knows that he is, he is sort of the best in their minds. So, you know, so some women are, um, are you know, able to access their sexuality, and yet they're not able to articulate or even identify what they like or what they don't like, you know, and then others, and this is true, I think, among many who aren't raised in the evangelical church, you know, we're able to identify what we like and to access our sexuality, but, you know, we're, we've been so taught by society that a good woman pleasures others first. A good woman ensures that her husband is comfortable, her kids are comfortable, her workers are comfortable, her family is comfortable, her friends are comfortable, everyone is comfortable before you're comfortable. And that even there's nobility in suffering and that there's nobility in suffering so so if what you did um you know if you know pleasured the other person then that is the sign that it was good that it was a good sexual experience um or experience in general because this is you know a larger teaching so so some women you know are are in a position where they're um you know, able to be sexual and able to identify what they want, but they're not. Uh, but they're. But that isn't. That isn't present in right. their sexual life. And they're not given. They're, and they're not mm-hmm. given voice. By the way, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Linda K. Klein about her book, Pure. Um, if you'd like to join in the conversation, if these experiences resonate with you, we'd love to hear from you. So give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, Linda. You know, this concept of the suppression of voice, losing your voice, you told um, actually a very interesting story about your time at Sarah Lawrence when you didn't even realize that you had lost your voice. And I'm not even talking about it in a sexual realm. Could you tell us about Blue Jones and your experience with her? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great example of the ways in which, you know, these these things play out in the sexual sphere, but they're so much bigger. Um, so I was, uh, you know, taking a, uh, a music uh, uh, independent study with a professor, and I uh, had called in sick one day, and she replayed the message of me calling in sick back to me and uh, replayed it and replayed it and replayed it and replayed it and told me to reflect on what I was hearing. And what I was hearing, as she and I dug into for the rest of the semester, was somebody who was performing a really apologetic, I'm so sorry I'm going to be sick today and I can't come in, sort of high voice <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, version of myself. And, um, and you know, it, and it was interesting because what we found ourselves doing over our work together over the semester, you know, in addition to, you know, what we were doing on the surface, which was writing songs and working on music, was we were working on voice and literal voice, you know, the way in which I was actually performing the voice of a good little girl in order to be acceptable, particularly when I was doing something like calling in sick. Um <clears throat> And ultimately, you know, started to realize that I didn't have a a real access to my true voice, right? I wasn't taught to speak in that voice, and I wasn't taught to access that voice, that inner voice. Um, You know, I had spent so much time focusing on being what I was supposed to be for others, Um, you know, as we talked about before, Mm -hmm. making sure that everyone else was comfortable before I was, um, that I couldn't even tell you in many cases what my real thoughts were, what my real feelings were, what my real beliefs were, um, what my real voice was. 
It's um, it's interesting to me that you landed at Sarah Lawrence and um, and wonderful to see that somebody there brought you like brought this to you and brought this out of you. What was the experience like for you going from this structured, rather homogenous community to a place like Sarah Lawrence? Yeah, well, first of all, I had no idea what Sarah Lawrence was when I went. Um, you know, this was before the Internet. You know, you would look up every college on the Internet before you went, right? The Internet was still <laughs> new. So there was no Facebook group or anything like that that I could look at. Um, you know, so I, I really had no idea what I was getting into. But what I knew was this. The pamphlet said something that was really exciting to me. It said, um, here we teach people how to think, not what to think. Now, I had been raised what to think for a really long time. And the idea that there was a place that saw education that way was so exciting to me. And everything, the whole educational structure at Sarah Lawrence is based around that idea, is around, around teaching people how to think. Um, so it was a really exciting place for me to be and a really exciting place for me to find my authentic self and to, you know, identify what I really, you know, thought about things and believed about things and felt about things and so on, um, which, which, you know, really is the beginning of what led me down this journey of realizing that there was a gap <laughs> right. between who I really was and what I really believed and who I was presenting myself as and um, in order to please others. And one of the things that you've been working on more recently is also how to help other people think about themselves and their own voices and their sexuality. Talk to me about Break Free Together. Absolutely. So, so much of my healing really took place through the experience of being with other people. You know, I spent 12 years doing interviews, which was essentially 12 years of putting myself through narrative therapy. I just <laughs> told my story over and over and over again, you know, and then I heard my story told back to me in the stories of other people. Details were different. Their lives were different. But the core experiences of sexual shame and fear and anxiety were the same. Many of us were um, having those things manifest physically in our bodies. Some of us were experiencing the symptoms of PTSD as a result. And that reality, that knowledge that I wasn't alone, right, that um, others in my hometown were experiencing this, that others around the country were experiencing this, was what began my healing journey because it's what showed me that the problem wasn't me, that the problem was, um, was what was taught to us. Because um, there were too many of us experiencing it for the problem to be me. Mm -hmm. And so Break Free Together, you know, is really kind of rooted in that experience of healing that I had and that many of my interviewees talked about having through the interview process as well. Because I've really come to believe that you don't break free alone, that you only break free together. So Break Free Together provides a number of different ways for people to be able to start to share their stories. Um, with one another. And I encourage people to talk to a friend if you've never told anyone about a particular story. You know, talk to someone that you really, really trust. Maybe that's where you're at. You know, it's just one person telling one person. When you started um, to collect these interviews, what was your motivation? Were you doing it as part of your graduate school research as a writer? Or w were you aiming for personal catharsis? In the early days, um, I don't think I could have articulated exactly why I was doing it. Um, it was, you know, I was 26. I moved back to my hometown. I started in my hometown. I called up every young woman I'd grown up with in my youth group and said, I'm experiencing these things. How about you? And um, a big part of it at that point was just needing to understand this, needing to grapple with this, needing to know I wasn't alone. I'd had a number of conversations with people, but um, I actually moved back to right outside my hometown to spend a year doing this because I knew that these one-off conversations were the beginning of my healing, but I needed more. I was never going to be healthy. I was never going to have a healthy relationship if I didn't really figure this out. There were no books about it. There were no online communities about it. There were no websites about it. I couldn't find any sort of source of guidance. Um, and the only guidance I could find was from my hometown, talking to the girls I grew up with, finding out what was going on the hard way. How um, did you create enough trust and safety for women who had been conditioned not to acknowledge these things to talk with you? Oh, because because this is the stuff that matters, you know, because there's so much pain and mm. there's so much trauma that people are holding. And, you know, about the things that we experience the most, the most shame and the most trauma, many of us are just waiting 
for someone who really cares to ask, to ask and then to provide us the space to actually answer. You know, so it actually wasn't difficult to get people to talk, particularly because I wasn't a researcher, because I wasn't a journalist, because I was a fellow sufferer, you know, somebody who understood and who could just sit non-judgmentally and be with them as they voiced things that perhaps they'd never voiced before. So now I want to connect that idea of making a safe space to tell these stories and share. Um, to tell us what, how does Break Free Together work? What is it as an activity, an organization, a platform? Sure. So I believe that we need a spectrum of ways to be able to start to tell our stories. So Break Free Together provides, you know, some items on that spectrum. You know, as I said, you know, you can just tell somebody who's a close friend of yours your story. Um, we have, uh, I have a postcard campaign where I actually bought a P.O. box so people could send me their story with a, on the back of a postcard oh and I can God. post it to be part of a, an online community so they don't have to share their their online identity to join into an online conversation. Any chance you're um, going to turn those into a book? It sounds like it would be beautiful. <laughs> it would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I share them on my Break Free Together Instagram page. So if you want to go on Break Free Together on Instagram, you can see some of them there. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I go to the post office every once in a while and, and collect postcards. You know, whereas others are ready to start to talk um, more publicly. So we have the Break Free Together hashtag. I use that hashtag when I post the postcards as well. <clears throat> and I also have a dinner model where I actually can lead dinner discussions so people can start to come into conversation about this, um, you know, with trusted groups of people um, at their school or at their church or wherever I host it. I noticed online, um, the website's beautiful, by the way, that um, one of the options is to join the organization, The Dinner Party. Is it just a happy accident or uh, purposeful that that connects to Judy Chicago's dinner party? Oh, that's actually, it's a different group. Um, I, do love, I do love Judy Chicago's dinner party. Um, no, actually, the dinner model is in partnership with um, a, a, the, a group called the Dinner Party, which actually brings people together to talk about life after loss, particularly as a young person losing someone like a parent very close mm -hmm. to you. So it's a different kind of taboo topic that they have created a beautiful dinner model around. And I work with them very closely to um, to take what they've learned about how you get um, create a, a space where people can come together in protected space um, to come into voice um, and apply it to this topic. So you're really creating these multiple opportunities for people to share their stories and other to listen as a mechanism for kind of mutual catharsis. Yes, mutual catharsis is the first part of it. I think it's the beginning of healing. I think as you learn that you're not alone, then that's when you start to separate yourself from the issue, and that allows you to address the issue. So long as you think you're alone or believe in your gut you're alone, even if intellectually you don't, you can't separate yourself from the issue. Um, but once you really believe you're not alone, you can separate yourself from the issue, then you can start to do your work. Of course, this is also the way we make change, because the more of us who tell our stories, the more um, difficult it is to ignore us. Absolutely. So if people want to read the book themselves, where can they find it? They can find it actually, I think, anywhere right now. It's doing, yeah. um, uh, it's, it's out there in the bookstores, I hope, um, out there online. You can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and your favorite local independent online or in person retailer. Fantastic. Um, and find more about Break Free Together at breakfreetogether.org. Linda, I'm so grateful for your joining us here today. Oh, I'm so grateful for you having me. This is such an important topic, and it bleeds into every part of people's lives. And so I really appreciate you recognizing that and saying, yes, we're talking about business here, but there are some things that influence how we act in a business sphere that that are rooted elsewhere. So thank you for your, for your innovation. <laughs> it's my pleasure and my honor to have you join us. Keep up the good work. And thank you all so much for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. And I'm at Laura Zarrow. Special thank you to my guest today, Linda K. Klein. I'd also like to thank my guest producer today, Patty McMahon, my sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.